Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. When is a gospel not the gospel? Or to put it another way, when is a version of Christianity a distortion of true Christianity? Now, that's as vital and relevant a question today as it was in the first century. We see around us differing versions of Christianity, different denominations, new churches springing up, TV religious programs, various sects, traditional cults, new spiritualities. How can you tell with the diverse expressions of Christian faith around to do, when are they all part of the rich tapestry of Christian faith to be welcomed? And when are they departures from Christian faith? Paul's letters, letter to the churches in Galatia, that's Western Turkey, tackles that question. Well, this is the first in the new series, and it's just an introduction. Uh, But what we're looking at, what you're holding in your hands, if you've got it, is a very unusual letter, even by New Testament standards. Two chapters of history, followed by two chapters of theology, followed by two chapters of ethics. The main theme is Christian freedom. This letter frequently refers to freedom. The Christian is free. We've been echoing that in the songs this evening. The central call is at the beginning of chapter 5, where Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, he says, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You're free. Stand firm, that is, against certain people who you're going to see in the coming weeks were perverting the gospel. Don't fall back into slavery, into legalism. And the force of the letter is that if Christians are free, we shouldn't lay extra burdens on one another. We should accept one another. To use the vogue words, we should be tolerant and inclusive. And the freedom of the gospel is threatened by unnecessary obligations. So freedom and obligation sum up the whole letter. But the gospel puts boundaries around that freedom. Chapter 5 continues, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. In other words, don't fall into license. And this tension between law and license is also at the heart of this letter. And Paul tackles that head on. You see, when you put believers together in a church, the question becomes, how tolerant and welcoming should the church be? 
How accepting. What is exclusive about membership of the Christian community and what should be inclusive? We often say we should be a welcoming community, accepting people unconditionally. And I'm sure you are. But there are boundaries somewhere. Different boundaries depending on what you're talking about. For example, accepting people who are different from us is one thing. Accepting their lifestyle or behavior may be another. We don't tolerate racism or deceit or violence or theft or child abuse. Now, do you see immediately <laughs> the message of this letter isn't just academic. Paul says to us today, as he did to them, stand firm, Emmanuel Croydon. Don't come back under the burden of obligation. And so I expect you're going to discover over these next few Sundays some of the freedom that we have in Christ. Or rediscover it. Or if you've already discovered it, be preserved in that freedom. And what a marvelous truth it is. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. A wonderful truth, but a surprising one that you or I would never have written into the New Testament. You know how we're always told freedom is not an end in itself. The history of revolutions tells us freedom from is always inadequate unless it is freedom for another end that is greater than mere freedom itself. Freedom can never be for its own sake. And then the apostle comes along and says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Albeit with his qualification, you are called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Even more surprising is his suggestion that far from dragging our heels back into slavery, we might even desire to fall headlong into it that there's something in each of us that wants to live by rules, that would rather be given rules and told what to do than live in the scary responsibility of free choice. How is it possible that liberated Christians would want to come back into servitude? The start of Paul's letter is a great surprise. Christ has set us free from the law, from sin, from death. How is it possible that the liberated slave should ever want to go back into slavery? Well, Paul is as consternated by that as we are. In view of the freedom God wants for all his children, is it conceivable that Christians should willingly fall back into bondage? Well, unfortunately, it is. And you're going to plunge straight into that next week in verse 6. I want you to know, brothers, he says. No, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. He was as astonished as we are. Now, what is all this about? What was going on? For our remaining time tonight, let me focus on these first five verses. They hint at what was happening 
in the little churches in Asia Minor and how Paul is going to address it. Let me come back to our initial question. When is a gospel not <clears throat> the gospel? Or positively, when is it the true gospel? Well, I suppose a simple answer is to say when it is God's gospel. And did you notice that God is mentioned three times in those first five verses? That doesn't take us very far. It sounds a bit like the Christian in conflict with a fellow believer who exclaimed, all right, you go your way, I'll go his way, God's way. But let's look at what Paul says about God. God sent Paul as an apostle, that's verses 1 and 2. God sent grace and peace, that's verse 3. And God sent Jesus to give himself for us. That's verses 4 and 5. Now we're going to take them in the reverse order because the force of Paul's argument is this. That the heart of the true gospel is that Jesus was sent to die for us. And because Jesus was given for us, grace was given to us. And because grace was sent, Paul was sent with his special role. We'll come to that. But first of all, the heart of the gospel, God sent Jesus. I'm so thrilled that we had that up at the beginning of the service, and uh, uh, John got you all to say it to each other. It's the very heart of the true gospel. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And you see immediately the marks of the true gospel. It is Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. It is cross-centered. Although he is raised from the dead, that's in verse 1, it's not by his resurrection, but by his death that we're saved. It is a gospel of freedom. Uh, the word here was rescue, but it is the word freedom. It means free. Straight away, therefore, you have this note of freedom in the letter. It's a gospel of forgiveness of sin. And it's a gospel, you note, not to rescue us out of the world, but to rescue us from the present evil age in the world. Its origin is the will of God the Father, and its end is the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel. Now, as a result, pedal backwards from the end, God sent grace and peace. Look at verse 3, if you've got it in front of you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know we're so familiar with this, but you know, when you really look back and think on it, this is so wonderful. Grace is getting the love you don't deserve. Peace is not getting the judgment you do deserve. The free love of God 
the undeserved mercy of God. So now, do you see the logic? Because the God of all the earth sent Jesus to die for the whole world, together with Jesus, God sent grace and peace to all believers throughout the whole world. One of the issues over which the Galatians were being confused was this acceptance by God for all believers, the gospel of grace, through faith alone and in Christ alone. The technical term, justification by faith. How can I get right with God? And this is obviously another key theme of the letter. It's first spelled out in chapter 2, verse 15. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. If you know your Reformation history, you'll know this letter was the tract for the times. It was the clearest answer to the perversions of the gospel by the medieval church. Luther's commentary on Galatians was and still is a classic in that respect. So acceptance by God, his free, gracious love, without earning it or deserving it, simply by faith, nothing more. That is a key issue. But it seems the disturbers of the peace were saying something else, in addition. They were saying you had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to do other things as well. What those were, you're going to look at next week. But basically, their gospel was a Jesus plus gospel. Now, some gospels aren't the real gospel because they're Jesus minus the issue in Galatia was not Jesus minus, but Jesus plus. When you put not just people together in a single church congregation, but different churches alongside each other, the question takes on a new layer. How should churches accept one another? How accepting should they be? And that was the startling question in 50 AD. All the churches up to then had been founded from Jerusalem, the mother church, and they were predominantly Jewish. But now Jewish churches, sorry, non-Jewish churches, were springing up in Asia Minor. And they were being told they had to conform to Jewish custom. They were acceptable only if they did three things. They had to obey the, the kosher food laws, they had to observe the Jewish festivals, and their men had to be circumcised. These were, if you like, three topics of their Discipleship Explored course to add to their Christianity Explored, through which they had received Christ. They were Christians already. There was no doubt about that, but to be proper Christians, kosher Christians, they needed a few additions to their faith, to be accepted by Mother Church. For all these reasons, Paul was sent. Because Jesus was sent, now do you follow the logic of this? Because Jesus was sent, grace was sent, but before, because grace was sent, 
Paul was sent. And that's how he introduces himself. So pedal back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle. The word apostle means a sent one. Sent not from men, nor by a man, he says, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, why was Paul needing to stress all of this? He says, I was sent not from men, I wasn't commissioned by them directly, nor was I sent from God by man or through man, I wasn't commissioned indirectly through them. I was commissioned directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So do you see what he was saying? He's saying he wasn't appointed by a group of men. For example, it might have been the Twelve or the Jerusalem Church. The the origin of his apostleship was not human in any sense, but divine. But neither was his apostleship from God, but mediated through any human being. For example, you might think of Ananias, who laid hands on him, or Barnabas, who discipled him. No, he says, human beings had nothing to do with it, either directly or indirectly. Either the source or the agency of his apostleship, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, this was the issue at stake. Whether the Judean churches planted from Jerusalem under the authority of the Jerusalem apostles, those were, of course, Peter, James, and John, whether they would affirm without reservation the the Galatian churches planted by the apostle Paul. Would the Jewish churches welcome the Gentile churches on an equal footing and unreservedly and without any obligations upon them? This was the presenting issue over which the Galatian congregations were being confused. And so Paul goes back to basics, to his commissioning as an apostle, and to the heart of the true gospel. If God accepts us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through his cross alone, we ought to accept one another who believe. If you believe that God welcomes you without reservation on that basis, sinless though he is and sinful though we are, then of course you must, you will welcome other believers without reservation, sinful though you all are. And if you don't accept and welcome other Christian groups and churches, it simply shows you don't know the gospel of grace. You're turning to a different gospel. Now, let me give an example or two. Um, This is from a Roman Catholic tract. Let me hasten to add, I'm not sure if many Roman Catholics or if all Roman Catholics today would say this, but this comes from a catechism, a tract uh, taken out of Westminster Cathedral, and it's entitled, 
Catholics and non-Catholics. The writer puts it like this. This church, the Catholic church, will attain her full perfection only in the glory of heaven. But already she possesses a fullness surpassing that of any other body. And so the greatest grace in this life is to be a member of the Catholic Church. Once a person sees this, they must in conscience become a Catholic. Members of other Christian bodies, believing that Christ is God and baptized in his name, are brought into a certain, though imperfect, communion <clears throat> with the Catholic Church. It's our privilege to accept them as brothers and sisters, with respect and affection. They possess insights from which we may learn. They will stand with us, proclaiming Christ in the face of a pagan world. The difference between us are far less than the agreements, and it's Christ's will that we should all be one. Now notice how peaceable and reasonable it is. And yet, how superior. But so that we don't look and point a finger outwards, what about pointing it inwards? How about the Anglican superiority? There can be a feeling that the Church of England is the real church. There are other churches, but we are the church for the nation. Proper church. We are, after all, the Church of England. Let me come closer home. There could be a feeling that conservative churches or commission church plants or new wine churches or alpha churches, that these are the churches that, quotes, possess a fullness surpassing that of any other churches in Southwark Diocese. The test of our right or wrong thinking is how we react when a new church or mission initiative is planted nearby. Do You see, if you understand the gospel of grace, you extend grace to other Christian groups. Let me come to your own church family, which, of course, I don't know, so I'm free to say this. There could be a feeling among some groups within this church family who are advocates of a passion for this or that particular ministry or who have received this or that teaching from elsewhere or who are members of this or that mission group that imperfect though our particular clique is here and now until we attain the full perfection in the glory of heaven nevertheless our group at Emmanuel, already possesses a fullness surpassing any other group at Emmanuel. That's quite fun, this, isn't it? <laughs> but this is where it begins to come home. Let me now ju ju just read a bit of that tract again. Replacing the word Catholic for the word Jerusalem and non-Catholic for the word 
Gentile. Reading it back into the Galatian situation, and you have the precise issue where the gospel perverters were Jewish Christian missionaries. They were Christians, but they were Jewish Christian missionaries, a zealous Christian group from Jerusalem. I quote, changing the word. This church, the Jerusalem church, will attain her full perfection only in the glory of heaven. Yes. But already she possesses a fullness surpassing that of the Gentile churches. No. And so the greatest grace in this life is to become a member of the Jewish church. Once a Gentile believer sees this, he must in conscience also become a Jew. Gentile believers, believing that Christ is God and baptized in his name, are brought into a certain, though imperfect, communion with the Jewish church. And so on and so on. Do you see? This was precisely what the Jewish Christian messengers were saying. And the reason why this is so important? Well, unless Paul had stood up to them, we wouldn't be here today. Unless, uh, I don't know you at all, and it may well be, praise God, that there are some here tonight, one or two in your congregation, who come from a Jewish background. You are Messianic believers. But you'd be the only people in this church because Christianity would be a Jewish sect. What Paul was shown uniquely by God and by the risen Christ was direct mission to the non-Jewish world, quite apart from Jewish rituals. Authentic Christian living for Gentiles apart from a Jewish lifestyle. And therefore, the total equality of Jewish and non-Jewish believers in the church. Paul saw that he could go straight to the whole Gentile world without going via Jerusalem or via Rome or via Canterbury. So do you see what we owe under God to this one man, Paul? World evangelization is inconceivable without him. And without him, we would not be sitting here today. There had to be this man with his special calling. The Jerusalem apostles could never have done what he did. There had to be this man, quite independent of Peter, James, and John. How shocking that would have sounded in the first century. How obvious in the 21st century. How important for this man to be kept, isolated at first, independent of the others, without any possibility of contamination by misunderstandings from Jerusalem. And so for 14 years, the, the first 14 years of his Christian life, he saw practically nothing of the others. Isn't that extraordinary? Just a fortnight with Peter and a brief introduction to James. To preserve intact the incomparable insight given direct to Paul by God. And what was it? Not a different gospel, 
Not even a final extra piece of the gospel to the other apostles. Like the final piece of a jigsaw, it wasn't that. It was the same gospel, but a wider destination of the one gospel to the whole world. So in one sentence, it's this. Paul's gospel, which is the apostles' gospel, and there is no other gospel, is God's gospel, is the gospel for the world. This is a very, very important letter. The gospel origin is not human, as some today might say. You know how people say the New Testament was written for the first century church, and the 21st century church must expect fresh revelation from the Holy Spirit, different from the apostles' teaching. That's the liberal position. No, it's not from man. It's not even through man, as some today like to say, that the New Testament came by human agency. And so the church stands over the Scriptures with the authority to interpret them and even supplement them. That's the Anglo-Catholic position. Now, Paul doesn't talk like that. He doesn't begin... Paul, an apostle of the church, commissioned by the church to write to you Galatians. He says his commission and his message were from God. Paul, like the other apostles, was an apostle of Christ, not an apostle of the church. The Bible's own view is that the apostles derived their authority and their gospel from Christ. Their authority is not human, either individually subjective, that's the liberal position, or ecclesiastical, the Catholic position, but divine, the evangelical position. So how can we make sure we're staying with the true gospel? The acid test was there in verse 4, of the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And if we're turning from that, the wonderful thing is we can turn back. It wasn't too late for the Galatians. They were turning, but they hadn't turned. They were deserting. You'll see that next week. But they hadn't deserted. It wasn't too late for them, and it's never too late for us. Well, shall we turn that into prayer? Would you please stand? As I've kept saying, I don't know you with any degree of closeness. So I'm just throwing out these responses in the air. If the cap fits, wear them. I don't know where this lands with each one of us. But something or other of this will land with each one of us somewhere. Maybe God is saying to us that we've had a, a bit of a superior attitude to other, either other individual Christians or other groups of Christians within this church 
or other churches in this area. And it's a moment just to say to him, Lord, I'm so sorry for that attitude, that arrogance. Please forgive me and have, help me to have a right attitude to others. I wonder if positively, some of us, as we were looking at this, were just feeling prompted. There's, there's that group, either within Emmanuel or nearby or further afield, and I or we could reach out a hand of fellowship to them, offer to work with them, accept them as God accepts them by grace alone. Maybe there's some initiative, some prompting in each of us. Maybe our vision for sharing the gospel, for doing so personally, has been limited. We've only thought of the people like us, the people culturally like me. And I've restricted in my faith those whom I think God might work in to bring to himself. That the gospel is for people like me or is for people to become like us. Maybe it's a moment to say to him, Lord, blow that attitude apart. Do your surprising thing. Work the unexpected in me, in us, in the people around us. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want. Let me not restrict that in my prayers, my faith, my courage to go out and share that faith. Maybe this word free and rescue is just one that has stayed with us through this time. I just sense there's one or more of us here who feel, I'm, I don't feel very free as a Christian. And maybe that's because we've been deceived. We've swallowed the idea, maybe from unbelievers around us in our family or at work or neighbors of ours, and they seem so free. Maybe they've implied that to us. You Christians are the ones who are constrained and bound. We're free. And right now we say no to that. We dare to say, no, Lord, no, Lord. It is for freedom that you have set me free. Maybe at the same time, there's someone here tonight who's saying, I've been bound, not so much by legalism, but by license. And 
I just wonder if there's someone here tonight who feels there's, there's something in my past from which I don't think I can be rescued and forgiven. And let me tell you that God says no to that. And we should say no to it. Dare to believe tonight in his rescue, his desire to free you. And if that's you, I just encourage you not to try to do this on your own, but to ask for help. Go and talk to someone who you think could be a really helpful guide to you. Jesus died to rescue you. Dare to believe it. Act on it. Do something about it. Don't just languish in the thought... I'll never change. Nothing can help me now. And some of us, I think, just need to internalize uh, again that message of grace and peace, the undeserved, unmerited, unearned love of God. Even in the silence, take it to yourself. Don't say it out loud, but say under your breath, I am the forgiven, the free. I've received, I receive now the undeserved love and mercy of God. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.